calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name is A. Kovacs, and I'm a founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And I'm Scott Sigler, New York Times bestselling novelist, and I want you to die, Mr. Bond. Okay. Okay. And this is Episode 7 of Story Smack, the podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. Today, we're looking at five box office lessons learned for 2016, and we'll also give you the top 10 highest grossing films of last year. I'm going to bet there's a comic book movie or two in there. Probably so. Probably. But uh, before we begin, just to let listeners know what's coming up on future episodes of Story Smack, we are covering bunches of stuff. Mm -hmm. On on Friday, January 27th, we'll celebrate the release of Resident Evil, the final chapter, by giving you our take on the first five Resident Mm. Evil flicks before we head to the theater to see that final installment. Final. Put final in quotes. Final, Yeah. yeah. Uh, on February 3rd, we'll break down the 10 highest budget films of 2016. What kind of flicks were they? Mm-hmm. How did they do at the box office? That good, kind of thing. Good. On February 10th, woohoo, we'll be reviewing John Wick in advance of seeing John Wick 2, which comes out that week. We're weekend. going the same days. And then on February 17th, we're covering the 25th anniversary of Wayne's World. 25. Excellent. 25 freaking years since that came out. That's mind boggling. Anybody who saw it in theaters, you're like, wait, what? What? Yesterday, I, w- I was looking at a New Yorker magazine, and it um, it has an article called Spielberg at 70. Ooh. And I was like, is that now? Is that now? Is that? <laughs> and I read it, and it was, yeah, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out 40 years ago. So that MFR made that when he was 30 years old. Ooh. Wow. That's, that's friggin' amazing. But today, I saw an article in Variety magazine that had some very good info. It is by Brent Lang. He's the senior film and media editor, and his article is titled, Five Box Office Lessons from 2016, From Franchise Fatigue to Fading Movie Stars. So we're going to go over these. We're going to go over those points uh, right now. Yes, but here's your weekly generic spoiler alert. I don't know if we'll spoil any of these movies. I don't even know if we've seen all these movies, but this is a place where we're going to talk in spoiler fashion. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to list the top 10 highest grossing movies of 2016. Well, that'll be good. That'll yeah, be, that'll be good, good to see who made all that, made all them ducats. All right, Padawan, let's, uh, let's get into this article. Let's cover the top 10 highest grossing. God damn it. Oh, that's right. I, that comes after the article. Sorry. So we'll pick up. So after we're done with this article, you pick up from that line right there. Okay. I got it. So that is correct. That is correct. Let us get into this article. Um, Some very interesting things. This is the, we're not movie experts. We're not industry experts. We're getting into the industry a little bit in different ways, but I'm happy to finally see at least one article that lists 
measuring movies success and year success by the number of attendees instead of by box office because pretty much every year they set a new box office. 2016 was the biggest year in movies ever. It grossed more than ever before. And you're like, yeah, it's called inflation, right? Well, no, but a lot of those, they might be adjusting for inflation. Like they do that a lot when they look at what really are the biggest grossing movies of all time. And Indiana Jones ends up on that list all the time. They have to be adjusting for market. They don't. When they say this is the biggest, the highest box office year ever, they're not adjusting for inflation. But this is looking at... Uh, tenants was essentially flat last year. 1.32 billion people went to see a movie. And this is interesting. That is a far cry from the 1.57 billion admissions in 2002. So even though this was the highest year ever as far as gross box office, gross domestic box office, it is uh, $3 billion, 0.3 billion less than went um, 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, it's an interesting thing. Um I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or not, but have you ever heard that idea that the city, the civil engineers in New York City were so, or Boston or something, uh, right before Henry Ford introduced his automated line and created cars, they were mm-hmm. so worried about what they were going to do about the the horse poop in the street <laughs> yeah. because it was starting to become a, a biohazard kind of. Okay. And there was just so much people moving and so much traffic, they didn't know what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. But it turns out, not a problem they needed to solve because of the car. I wonder if a similar thing happens, like, obviously, if you're in the movie making business, you want people to watch movies. Correct. But we've seen it over and over again where um, licensing licensing and rights and stuff like that is sort of weird because people want to hang on to the census and inventory they have. So I'm not going to let you... We're not going to release a movie worldwide everywhere in the world in the same day, but we're going to be really mad about pirates who sit in the theater and film with a shaky handheld camera and then make DVDs. So I wonder if 15 years later, the reduction of 0.3 billion people, that's a whole lot. But are they watching at home? Are they buying digital DVDs? Are they, you know, are they doing something to make up for some of that market share? And I, I always wonder if the how long it'll take the industry to react. Some of it, and we're going to get into a couple of points that address exactly what you said. Very prophetic, man. Very mm-hmm. prophetic. But you're right. You know, 15 years ago, there wasn't a Netflix. There wasn't Amazon streaming. There wasn't a Hulu. Right. Et cetera. There were DVDs. I don't think Blu-ray was out 15 years ago. Possibly. But really, if you wanted that theatrical experience, you had to go to a theater. And now you don't. And also... There's so much more competition now. Netflix alone is putting out more stuff in a year than basically you can even watch if you watch an episode of TV every day. Right. So there's tons of stuff that people can watch and original content people get into that isn't go see this in the theater. And now that I think about it, I you know, it certainly Laserdiscs, if not Blu-rays, existed in 2002. Maybe mm-hmm. both did. But Twitch didn't. Mm, you know, correct, and YouTube correct. didn't and things and like the internet that wasn't nearly yeah. what it is right. now. And YouTube right. didn't. That's right. YouTube's only 11 years old, believe yeah. it or not. So one of the things that came out of this article is Disney is responsible for more than half of the top 10 highest grossing films of 2016, which means Disney is still whooping that ass. Right. Well, right. And they're well established and understand the market at least a little better than I might have given them credit for, because I grew up in an age when Disney meant animated kids movies Mm -hmm. and that is clearly not the case because the top five grossing films or we know the ones that make the list are not i'm sure are not all 
I mean, some might be animated, but they're not all animated. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they've diversified and kind of go with their strengths over and over again. Like they know what makes a Disney animated movie look good, but they also now know what a comic book movie yeah, sort do. of should look like. And and they're better at it than I would have suspected. When I was a kid, it, right, Disney movies was animated movies and Herpes the Love Bug, which was an interesting... Herbie. Herbie? Herbie. Well, that's a completely different movie. Though. Yeah, absolutely. You, not... I'm not sure what was going on in the Sigler house when you were a kid, but that, that, thought, is, not, that is not I normal. always thought Herpes the Love Bug was a, a metaphor. So the first point this author makes is directly addressing what you were saying, that windows are collapsing. And windows are traditionally, you have your theatrical release window, then 90 days later, you get your, I believe it's um, DVD or network TV. This is the old school. Nine years later, you get a network TV. Then a few weeks after that, months after that, you get the VHS, the DVD release, et cetera. And it keeps on going on the window so they can grab a little bit of money from each of those areas. So the people didn't want to see it in the theater, they're still going to try and find a way to take those dollars out of your pockets. But now the, the threat of piracy is too real, so it says in the article, and it's increasingly clear that in our on-demand culture, one in which people want to see things where they want, when they want, is making the old experience of hitting the multiplex seem passe. So now, heading into 2017, more people are having discussions about releasing the films the same day in on-demand formats, but at a much higher rate. So instead of paying your $13 to see it in the, the multiplex, you would be willing to pay $30 to see Rogue One at home. Yeah, and it's an, you kind of have to, I, I think if you're smart... You realize that you don't change the marketplace. The, the marketplace changes you. And mm-hmm. those, are the, those are the businesses that do well. And especially in a movie-making world, we've talked about this before on Story Smack, where people really can vote with their wallets. And we're starting to see that. People are like, yeah, no, I know you spent $250 million, and I totally want to see that super cool effect that you spent a hundred grand on. Sure. But... I got kids, I got to make dinner, I got, I'm taking a night class, everything else. And if I can do all my, all the things that I'm obligated to in my personal life, and then at nine o'clock, once a month, sit down on a Friday night at nine o'clock and spend 30 bucks, but I can stay in my jams and I can make popcorn myself and have my pups around. And now the typical TV is completely different experience. I mean, it's a typical TV is 40, 46, even 50 inches. They're high def. You're, you're even able to stream high def stuff over the internet. It's a night and day different experience to what it was 2002. So now you drop that 30 bucks. Oh, that seems expensive. Okay, it's 30 bucks. But I got four people in my house. So mm-hmm. that would have been, you know, $49, $50 right there. Plus popcorn costs literally a nickel at yeah, home, right. you know, and all the pop and everything else in the comfort of your home. And you save the driving time and everything else. I remember when uh, the new Star Wars, the Hope, um, the Force Awakens was coming mm-hmm. out. And I was mm-hmm. going to sit down and watch all the Star Wars movies mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. And found out you you know of course you're not on Netflix which shocked me but it, obviously it's the biggest thing of all time so I went to watch them all one at a time and they were 19.95 a piece to stream and I was all like oh you're not gonna get my twenty dollars you goddamn sons of bitchin' money grubbing whores right. and I turned into an old industrialist from circa <laughs> 1915 and I shook my fists and uh, and now when I stop and think about it well you know if I have a couple of friends over or whatever and we watch that it's on a, I got a surround sound I got a projector all this cool stuff it's actually cheaper than going to the movie it's cheaper than going to the movie yeah as long as you don't you know it's everybody is obligated the industry is obligated to rethink the way 
entertainment is consumed and so is the consumer. Mm -hmm. So the difference is this. What you're thinking is I turn on my TV and get entertained all the time and that that shit is free. Shit is free. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't get the actual, you could have purchased it, but you chose not to because it didn't feel worth the money. Correct. I've already seen it 12 times. I'm not paying $20 for it. But it, that's so interesting because at your fingertips, you could have had exactly what you said you wanted. Yeah. You wanted to watch all three movies in a row in your own home in advance of The Force Awakens. Yep. And you wanted to, to like marathon it right away. Mm-hmm. And you could have done all of that with popcorn and your fuzzy slippers mm-hmm. and your dog. And it only would have cost you whatever it was, 60, 60 bucks. bucks. Right. And, and that didn't, you don't think about it that way. Because if I said... Dude, let's do that. And, right. and it happens all the time. You um, you always rent the um, MMA, or you always buy the MMA fights. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UFC fights. Yes. And invite a bunch of friends over and whatever. That's just about the same amount of money. That's like 50, 50 bucks. bucks a pop. But yeah. it feels totally worth it, right? Because then there's a party and you get to visit with your friends and mm-hmm. you get fully entertained for one night for 50 bucks, which was almost exactly what you were going to do with Star Wars. But one felt worth the money and one doesn't. Yeah, and some of that is I could if I had had the presence of mind to go on eBay, I could have had all six Star Wars movies for like five bucks because the DVDs have flooded the market. But so that, that but that is becoming more common now. And even a, a, a skin flint, stingy, cheap bastard like me is starting to go. Well, that's you know overall that's really not that bad. But here's the thing: we said Disney is responsible for more than half of the movies. Mm-hmm. Disney says nay to this. Um, Dave Hollis's studio's distribution chief says, quote, the theatrical experience is the embodiment of our filmmakers vision and acts as a locomotive to all downstream business. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the tall hog at the trough is like, no, you are not going to see, you know, finding Dory seven uh, at home the day it comes out. You need to go to the theater because we're making this for you. What was that gentleman's name? Dave Hollis. Dave Hollis, sir. Kind sir. Lovely sir who makes great movies. I would like to point your interest in the direction of, I don't know, say, the music industry circa 1990. <laughs> oh, Mr. Hollis, after you're done examining the complete freefall of the music industry until it discovered digital releasing uh-huh. and figured that Napster stuff out, then I would like to direct you to the publishing industry circa early 2000s, wow. where, where every author wanted, the, the, the end result of every author's uh, writing experience was supposed to be Looking and holding a book in your hands mm-hmm. and creating an environment where you enjoyed the story in its natural habitat and you can smell the pages. <laughs> and you know what happened? <laughs> Mr. Hollis? <laughs> both of those both of those industries rose from the ashes of what you thought was the only way it could be to deliver oh, the artist's vision. Yeah. And that is exactly what's gonna happen to the music business. I mean the movie the, business. The movie business. He better pay attention because now there's also, you know, Netflix making great stuff, awesome stuff, and increasingly higher budget stuff, no need for a theatrical release. Amazon Originals, no need for a theatrical release. If Xbox Network ever gets going, uh, Hulu, all of these things, they're all making stuff, which is part and parcel of the reason why this banner year for money for the theater is 0.3 billion people less, 300 million people less went to the theater. So what you're saying, A, what you point out seems to be, it seems to be bearing itself out with the numbers. Here's all these amazing movies that Disney's making. 
fewer people are going to the theaters than they were 15 years ago because good stuff's coming at home. And that there, we could be at the pinnacle of that. And as we've seen with music and with publishing, it starts to teeter, it starts to teeter, but then when it crashes, it crashes fast and hard. Well, and the good thing about it is, you know, humans, I hope at the end of the day, believe in, you know, more happiness is better in the world at large. So they just want to be entertained. They just want to be good people. They just want to, you know, and they'll be there to say, I mean, we've been trying to tell you, we just, I, I, I have this little device in my hand and I'm happy. It's not the same experience as if I watch it on a big screen, mm-hmm. but if all my friends have seen Rogue One and I haven't, and I can watch it on my four inch iPhone screen sure, sure. and then I can participate and live my life with my friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to do that. I, I would, me personally, A, I would choose to sit in the first or second row of the theater every time I go to the movies and I would choose to see every movie in the theater. Mm-hmm. But who's got that time? Who's got that, that kind of time? Yeah. His point number two, sequelitis may be real, but franchises are still king. Uh, he said audiences seem to come down with a nasty case of sequelitis last summer. Uh, and, and this does not speak to the quality of these films, which were round, roundly rejected by critics, but Independence Day Resurgence, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Out of the Shadows, Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising, all of these sequels did uh, very, very poorly. All told, three out of 14 sequels released over the summer failed to match the grosses of their predecessors. It didn't help that many of these films were roundly rejected by critics. And, of course, the old wag is like, well, a sequel is only supposed to make 80% of the original, but it's an automatic 80%. But what we've seen with Disney and with superhero movies and Resident Evil and Saw and all of these other ones is the, when it's done correctly, the, ongoing, the sequel makes more than the original. Yeah, well, and there's staying power. We were just talking about it. Like, you wanted to watch the first the first three theatrical released uh, Star Wars movies mm-hmm. before you saw The Force Awakens. So there's legs to that. You feel at home. You feel part of the experience. You, you know, there's a whole big reason to do that. It's in- always interesting to me that obviously there's not one. It's not just that those were sequels. But that certainly may be a part of it. Mm-hmm. But also the market will bear what the market will bear. And we still go to those movies. We still are like, yes, another whatever. Right. Yeah. And get so excited. If, yeah. yeah. And if, so if it's yes, another star Wars, there's, there's rationale to say like, dude, they will, they will totally love another transformers movie. They might be wrong, uh, you know, but well, then there's some point there's the breakdown. They'll love another transformers movie. And it doesn't really fucking matter what we put on the screen. At some point, the, producers and uh, filmmakers get disillusioned and like no one cares we'll just throw up some shit it doesn't matter and and when that happens that's when the franchise going but of the top 10 highest grossing films domestically eight are sequels remakes or exist in some kind of cinematic universe so of the eight top 10 movies we're going to talk about at the end of this the only exceptions to that were the secret life of pets and zootopia two animated offerings again associated with disney Hmm. Hmm. so and this is what I'm most excited about from this guy's article, because this is a trend that I have seen coming uh, that was super excited about when I saw Rogue One in the theater, which uh, that theaters need to do something other than just throw shit up on a screen because it's Transformers 17. He said the those sequels or spinoffs that did work, such as The Conjuring 2, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, introduced new characters or plot lines taking their franchise in innovative directions instead of simply recycling plot points and scenarios from previous chapters. So instead of just giving us the same movie or rebooting or mm-hmm. remaking, like Rogue One is now, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, which we are, and most people are, you couldn't possibly introduce someone to the Star Wars franchise without having them go episode one, two, three, Rogue One, 
four, five, and six. Right. Because it's that integral to how everything now connects. And that's mm-hmm. that's why that has been very successful. Yeah, I think I think um I think everybody I do it. I'm assuming I'm like everybody, where I'm like I mean all they have to do to make a great movie is XYZ. Yeah. It yeah. seems so easy. It seems so easy from sitting in my chair, which is, oh, I noticed not a director's chair. <laughs> I noticed I have made zero movies. And, you know, I'm armchair quarterbacking to mix metaphors. But I'm sort of like, I got this. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't introduce this guy. You should introduce another tiny robot. And that'll make everything better. But I obviously don't know what I'm talking about because mm. they don't make movies. And there's probably a lot that goes into it. That said, I do know what I'm talking about as a viewer. Mm-hmm. And people are different and people's tastes are different and all that other stuff. So I wonder, like, I'll be interested to see there's a new Spider-Man coming. And I think, right. And everyone I know, even people who are crazy for Spider-Man are like, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I've heard it's not a re... It's not a... We don't get to see his origin story again. Again. Which I'm convinced... Some studio exec is going to come back up. You know what we need? We need to see his origin story. So people connect with his growth, with his path. We're like, we've all seen it. We've all read it. It's, anyways. His point number three, and we can speak to this a little bit because we've been pitching stuff for TV and for movies and have had meetings with uh, fancy pants people. He says, after four after years of explosive growth, the Chinese box office finally showed signs of slowing down. Total ticket sales in the country grew by a mere 3%, a steep decline from the 49% jump experienced in 2015. Holy. So things, uh, the economy is changing there. Things are slowing down. I have no idea if they have a higher domestic production of films or if it's just... They're, you know, they're, they can't afford to go see the American movies or they're jaded. We don't know, but that's a, a mass. It's still growing, but a massive drop in growth. And th- at one time it was projected that, uh, China would be the biggest film market in the world in 2017 this year. And now people are like, that's probably not going to happen for a couple more years if it's going to happen at all. Hmm. So, but we know we've, when we've had these meetings, China comes up invariably. It right. comes up at some point in the discussion. Uh, one of the properties we've talked to people about, we're like, well, we have monsters, but they're not ghost ancestor monsters. So this is a very cool thing because like with Ghostbusters, that caused a lot of problems. It just didn't get released in China, which which crippled it. Mm-hmm. So they're still, of course, they're paying super close attention to what's going on in China. The um, And here's one uh, point of evidence that the U.S. failure of World of Warcraft, the movie, that made $47 million domestically. I think it was a $200 million budget film. I didn't get the budget number. But it's a total giant bomb Oof. in America. Like a bad, embarrassing egg on the face bomb. Uh, it did $386 million foreign. So 90% of the box office of what became a worldwide blockbuster was outside of the U.S. Right. And that's another thing I was saying earlier, uh, from what I was saying earlier, where at some point... And and I don't know when it is. Again, I'm also, I'm not a movie maker, right? So I don't run this. I'm not part of this business. I'm not keeping my con going, you know, but. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, 
at some point you have to stop going on what you instinctively know from your years in the business, which everybody does Mm -hmm. in no matter what their business and be like, yeah, this trend isn't going away. Yeah. You know, and so maybe domestic box office isn't what we should build our marketing on. Oh, and I don't think anybody is anymore. They're all, if you're making any kind of speculative fiction, science fiction, they are like, how is this going to play in India and in China, all over the world? Right. Well, I think the the creatives are doing that. But uh-huh. I, I sometimes I feel like the the that isn't the case with the back office, accounting office sort of things. Like they're still like, well, I mean... Projected domestic box office is like, okay, don't care. What I care about is lo- localization. Can I make sure the movie poster is right for Taiwan, is right mm-hmm. for India, is right, right for China? Because that's going to get more butts and more seats, and that's going to make everybody happy. I know what the domestic box office like, screw the domestic box yeah. office, nobody cares. Yeah, Are you out to win an award or become a rich person? What, which is it that you want? Welcome to Hollywood. Welcome. The answer is both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but China is also investing, not China, the government. And individual Chinese companies are investing heavily in the U.S. studios, uh, Sony in particular. We will post a link in the show notes of this episode to a Washington Post article that is titled China's Influence Over Hollywood Grows. And you can find that at scottsigler.com slash podcast slash 2016 lessons, 2016 and the word lessons, no spaces. And then the monkey wrench coming into this or the, um, the X factor, if you will, is the Trump factor. Uh, the article says... President-elect Donald Trump has railed against trade with China on the campaign trail. If he enacts tariffs on Chinese goods, it could impact the number of Hollywood films that the country allows to screen in China annually. So China can drop a hammer and say, okay, if we're in a trade war, guess what? The second biggest almost equal to what you make here selling movie tickets, we're not going to let you show movies over here. And watch, because that's how politics works. That's how international trade works, right? Right. Right. And you can be the biggest dick in the room as long as you're really the biggest dick in the room. Yes. And in the you're going to make a movie and you just think we're going to suck it up room, mm-hmm. China doesn't doesn't mess around at all. As you just mentioned with Ghostbusters and that kind of thing, they have more um, – the government has more control over what their populace sees. Yes. Which means they have a lot more power than we do because we have, of course, net neutrality and everything. I can go look at almost a million things on the internet. That isn't true mm-hmm. all through China. So we really need them to like us in that regard. So we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. We'll how that goes. Hopefully it doesn't impact our business as we're just on the cusp of getting into this, getting into this pool. Uh, I hope it doesn't turn into a deep end on us. Number four. This was a bit shocking to a lot of people in the world. It'll be shocking to you people listening at home. Star power gets dinged. Used to be there were certain faces you could put on a movie poster and that shit was going to make money. But Tom Hanks, Ben Stiller, Brad Pitt, Warren Beatty, Melissa McCarthy, and Johnny Depp all had giant bombs this year while movies such as Rogue One and the Jungle Book made bank without any A-list stars at all. So you didn't have, you know, Angelina Jolie's face on the cover, which mm-hmm. over the past decade has been the most successful way to have an international film is put her face on the cover of the DVD box and you're home free. Uh, one by one projects fell like Allied, Alice Through the Looking Glass, Inferno, Rules Don't Apply, Ghostbusters, and Zoolander 2 collapsed at the box office. Also, a big one everybody was expecting with two of the biggest young faces, uh, biggest young stars in the world, Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt, Passengers has done very poorly on the domestic front. And she was, probably still is, but was kind of the new Angelina Jolie. You put Jennifer Lawrence's face on a DVD box or a CD box, and it's going to sell internationally because they just, she's box office gold. Yeah, and it's interesting. I want to believe that's because 
the passenger story didn't connect. Yeah. Um, but, and Jennifer Lawrence, of course, she's an Oscar winning actress. She's had a lot of very highly acclaimed roles and mm-hmm. her performances several over the last several years. So she's gorgeous, mm-hmm. but she's also really good at her well, job. Well, that's what brings, yeah, there's something about her that brings people to movies all over the world. So part of that is you give her, you give her a role that it, that doesn't actually flex all those muscles and she doesn't do a powerhouse performance mm-hmm. because there isn't a powerhouse performance to be had okay. in, in arm candy, eye candy kind of roles. Uh, I'd love all that to be true, but I'm not so sure that that matters. I think, I, th- I mean, I don't, it has to be part of one and part of the other, right? It's not just if you put her face on the box, it will sell anymore. But at the same time, does that, is that, would that be true of movies where she won an Oscar and she was chewing scenery and I doing think, a great job? I think it's a, it's a combo, but it's more of a statistic, statistical thing. Her movies over time, like Angelina Jolie's movies over time, I was like, yeah, this image is here. She has fans all over the world. You know, once upon a time, that was Brad Pitt. Once upon a time, that was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So it, it, it goes, and everybody has their, their pinnacle and their decline. But I think with Passengers, what it was, was just, I was so fucking annoyed with that movie before it ever came out. I'm like, if I have to see one more goddamn Passengers ad, I'm angry at the movie already, and it, it's still two weeks away. And I remember commenting on that in social media. I'm like, I think they're hurting themselves with this overkill because it's, it's not everybody knows the movie is coming. And if you're going to see it, you're going to go see it. And now what you're actually doing is turning people off by just hammering you over the head. I don't know if that was a factor. That's just my general, my general impression. Yeah, and I didn't meet the way that I, I guess the way that I consume internet and news and whatever. I didn't. Well, for me, it was sports because I watch a lot of football and it was just, it was just nonstop, nonstop. You're like, back off, dude, relax. Uh, it's not just actors though, ma'am. We also had Steven Spielberg's the BFG and Ang Lee, Billy Flynn's long halftime walk that What happened to Ang Lee? What happened to Ang Lee? He likes, he doesn't give a shit. I think Ang Lee, Ang Lee's like, I like this story. I'm going to make this story and make it my way. I've got all the money I could ever spend and you can all kiss my ass. I'm going to make the movie I want to make. That's what I think. Except he's, he's not spending his own money. That's the thing. People keep hiring him. And after the Hulk almost. <clears throat> well, wait, 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 wait. Was Life of Pi after Hulk? Yes. Okay. So Life of Pi was a solid one, but oh my goodness. Hey, yeah. But I mean, he's happy to like, if you want to give me money and budget to make a movie, I'll make the movie I want to make. So he's living the creator's dream life where he doesn't seem he's not going out trying. I need another blockbuster. Whereas Spielberg is synonymous with blockbusters and the BFG was supposed to be the start of a big new franchise and and everything else. And uh, it did not it did not pan out. Lesson number five. And then we're going to get into your list of the top 10 grossing movies. Blockbusters can now arrive at any time of the year. Uh, gone are the days when a major release had to hit theaters between Memorial Day, you know, the Independence Day, you know, those mm-hmm, kind of things. Mm-hmm. And at the end of July, if you wanted to put up blockbuster grosses, instead, the likes of Deadpool, Zootopia and the Jungle Book opened in the dead of winter or spring and were rewarded with some of the year's highest grosses. Warner Brothers bet heavily in this type of dating when it scheduled Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice and Suicide Squad for March and August release windows. And it's parlaying into next year. Ghost in the Shell, Lego Batman movie, Logan, which I'm really hoping is is good because I need a oh, little, I, yeah, I need, we, I need, need, we need it to be I good. need him to go out in a blaze of glory. He's one of my favorite actors. So you need it to be good and you need it to go out. I, I want I think neither I, Hugh I think Jackman is 
from what superficial things we know of what we see him in, in public and when he's doing pressers and everything else and, and his work on the screen, he's such a friggin' delightful human being or a delightfully packaged human being. And he's given, done so much great work with the Wolverine thing that I really want, I, he'll be his last one, I want him to go out in a blaze of glory. I want him to be old man Logan, finish it up, and kind of bookmark this wonderful bit of career he has. But we'll see. Um, but those movies are steering clear of summer in favor of spring because yeah, it was only 10 years ago. Like it was summer blockbuster season and I've actually used that to describe my books. Uh Oh, this, well, my endings are what I go for in the ending of infected and contagious and pandemic and ancestor. I'm really going for that summer blockbuster tentpole finale. And when I would say that to people that go, Oh, okay, you're going completely over the top, high action, high drama. That's what you're going for. And it was a way to communicate how these books finish without giving any spoilers. And now we, we appear to be going away from that, uh, that old standby. Well, I mean, the blockbuster will still be true, but I also think that, that um, humans are fallible and easily forget. And so I, I wonder how many movies get held for, you know, for either early or mid-spring Memorial Day weekend-ish because, like, right now, this particular time of year is known for terrible terrible movies like Mm -hmm. they made it all the way to the box office we're gonna release it because we'll make some of our money back but oh lord we don't want to be up against logan for example we don't want to be up against logan we don't want people to remember this so they're they're (laughs) fatiguing from holiday holiday visits and movies and and interaction and socialness and whatever let's just give them these you know and then there's the the movies that come back into the theater because they were oscar nominated um and we're seeing a little bit of that too so I find that the blockbuster part, I think, will stay. But I do find that movies that studios kind of want you to not pay too much attention to tend to come out in January and February. Movies that they think have yeah. all the all the metal potential. They might win Oscars. They might win gold, all that. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff they put out in December, I think, right. still. Right. So nobody leaves. forgets about it by the end of right. time award season comes. Uh, well, ma'am, those are the five box office lessons learned from 2016, according to Mr. Brent Lang, senior film and media editor at Variety. So uh, thank you, Brent Lang. We got mm-hmm. um, good discussion out of your wonderful little article. And the highest grossing films then. I said I would talk about the highest grossing films Here of we go. 2016. What really matters. Am I going from 10 down? Yeah, going from 10 up. What really matters, the ducats. When it comes down to what everybody talks about, awards and all these other things, all of that parlays into making money because if you win an oscar then they get to market you as oscar winning if you put a if you put a movie out on february 1st when nobody's going to movies you get to say the number one movie in the country because you're up against no competition so all of this parlays into money 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 and money money. more money so let's go what was number 10 and and what was it uh that's uh, our that's our neighbor who can't control his dogs whatsoever so we're just gonna let them bark what was number 10 uh suicide squad released by warner brothers how much did that motherfucker make it made uh, $745,600,054. And like it's pilloried in the press. Is this horrible? Everybody I've talked to is like, it's a horrible movie. It's horrible, horrible. How much did that make again? Uh, $745 million and change. <laughs> so, uh, well, that's uh, gross, not net. So. I, I, yeah, but net, I mean, it's... Okay, that's and we don't have the we don't have the information on budget. And of course, it's usually you double the budget for promotion, and they did advertise the shit out of that. Not passengers level, but they advertise it quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, what was number nine, ma'am? Uh, number nine, which I so I didn't see Suicide Squad, but I did see number nine and loved it, which was Deadpool. Oh, number, uh, D- Deadpool only made number nine on this list. Uh huh. It was Holy released God. by Twentieth Century Fox, and it made seven hundred eighty-three million dollars. 
783 million $112,979. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic film. I yeah. can't wait for Deadpool 2. I am a little upset, though. There's already... That's one of those things that nobody saw coming, except well, Ryan Reynolds has been campaigning for that role for 10 years. And produced the movie to and, get it done. And produced the movie. So it's been ta- taking him forever to get that movie done. And the screenwriters... His him with the screenwriters and making the most out of the budget they had was an absolutely magical combination. And you're like, oh, I want all these guys to come back together and make another one because they're such a good team. And the screenwriters are already out. So he went from paying out of his own pocket to have the screenwriters on set for Deadpool so they could be there because the studio wasn't going to pay for it to now those screenwriters are out. And now it's like when a band changes the lead singer, you're like, oh, it's my favorite band. But oh, what's going to happen? Yeah. Well, and do we know why they're out? I, all I read was, you know, creative differences. Mm. Like they, or maybe they wanted too much money. It's difficult to say. But at right. the end of the day, the drug, it was an amazing script. They did a great, great, great job. Even the title treatments in that are just fantastic. But that movie is Ryan Reynolds and his performance. That's what made it. So yeah. he, he well, gets to call the shots. Well, and his dedication to it. His too. dedication, yeah. yeah. So he could probably, you know, there were pieces of Van Halen with Sammy Hagar that were rocking. Sure. Sure, that was still a pretty good band. I mean, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> okay, number eight, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, released by Warner Brothers, and it made $802,773,227. J.K. Rowling continues to eat raw carbon and poop out diamonds. Yeah, That's what yeah. she does. I believe that her whole digestive system must burn at a very high temperature and compress things very strongly. Um, she's a tiny woman because she's compressing. I she's well, well, she's firing out diamonds, pooping diamonds all the time. And they're very valuable diamonds, too. They are. And, and you know, I have, uh, I, have I have nothing bad to say. She makes great stories and yeah. she she manages her franchise with an iron fist, which I appreciate, yep. but has room for... Meadle of Harry Potter, my way. I think such a brilliant stroke. Pottermore not only encourages uh, fan fiction, which I'll never write in a million years. Mm -hmm. I I like to read sometimes, but I never write, Um, which is one way for me to become part of that world and part of those can make it my own. But Pottermore also sorts you into a a house and uh, gives you a Patronus and things like that. So they're more interactive uh, and yet still somewhat passive and so smart. She controls all of that she and is, yeah. makes room for everybody to play she in her sandbox. Completely understands her audience. Just She absolutely understands her audience. So amazing. So so envious and, and respectful of all the stuff that she has done. I didn't see that movie. We missed it. We were trying to go see it, but uh, scheduling problems came up, so I'll have to catch that one at home mm-hmm. on my awesome projector screen. Yeah, you do sort of have a movie theater at your house. I do. I do. Great. Yeah, I love yeah. movies. All right, what's what's next? What's number 6? I will six? say my oh. um my mother uh goes to a bunch of movies and her uh review of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was the thing that made me want to see it. I also missed it, which was <laughs> and that was it. I was like, "Did you see it?" She was like, "Of course." <laughs> I said, "Do you think I should see it?" And her answer was <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a pretty high endorsement. It's a good endorsement. Uh, okay, number seven, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Now that another one that ju- that lines up alongside of Prometheus. There are people who say Prometheus was this brilliant genius screenplay, and if you don't understand it, it's because you're stupid. That's real. If you don't like Prometheus, it's because you're dumb. And then there's the majority of people who are like, that's just a terrible movie with tons of tons of plot holes and characters motivation it's re- it doesn't make any sense at all etc cetera, etc cetera. 
it made a bunch of money. Batman, Superman seems to be the same way. Even guys, yeah, eight hundred seventy-three million dollars. Well, it's 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 the brand, right? That's something that people have been waiting to see for a long time, and they put it out, and people flock to the movies. But almost everyone I've talked to, it's about eighty twenty. It's Prado's law of this. Eighty percent of the people are like it's absolutely horrible. It's so bad. Don't I had my friends that I've been reading comic books with since we were in the third grade who were texting me going, please just, please don't see this movie. Don't reward them with money, which apparently the rest of the world, some people didn't get the rest of the world did not get that memo. But then there's other people I've talked to on Twitter and, and other places who are just, they absolutely adore it. They love it. But there apparently I read about this yesterday, the director's cut of that movie, four hours long. Yeah. Yeah. Four hours long. Yeah. That is not movies are a collaborative thing. Yeah. So if it ever comes out, and from what I've heard, the full four hour version, and the same thing with Suicide Squad, it was a lot cut out, like an over an hour. Uh, Jared Leto said he had enough performances by himself that were cut to make a whole movie. Mm. So maybe someday this could be part of the plan. They made their money, and now when they come out with the four hour long Superman versus Batman, it'll sell buku streams. Yeah, who knows? It may. I mean, historically speaking, that doesn't work. That's very rare. Mm -hmm. Blade Runner's director's cut, world famous as a better version than the original. But didn't they wait 20 years to put that out, though? Yeah, well, and over lots of consternation with the movie uh, house and everything else. They didn't want it. And it turns out, he was right. It should have been the director's way. Right. That said, movies are collaboration. They are, by definition, not one person's vision ever. Well, that, that, that begs the question. How, when you know, when you know they need to have it run a certain runtime so they get an extra showing on that same screen so they make more money per day for that movie, and you know the executives are going to come back, what is a director thinking when they turn in something that is three and a half to four hours long. They know it's going to get cut. I mean, mean, do you think they just get caught up in it? Or I mean, how does it even happen? I I think that you have a certain amount of latitude and depending on your experience level and your ownership uh, stakes in this movie, Mm -hmm. you have front end points or back end points and you have more creative control or less creative control and all that stuff. So I think the idea is, I'm not disputing at all that directors are artists and they have a job to do that's creative for sure, but they just think their poop doesn't stink. Yeah, well they think they poop diamonds and there's only one person who poops diamonds in this world. I mean there are people who put out very long movies Mm -hmm. and they are value adding, you know, and it used to be a 90 minute movie was pushing it. Was it? That was, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. All the movies you love from the 1980s, 80 minutes. every single one of those cut, clocks in at an hour and a half or less. Yeah. I would, almost all of them. Okay. And then now, early, the early aughts, it was two hours was a reasonable, you know, and and there's not a lot of, there's not a lot in a movie format, right? If you're going to make a movie out of War and Peace... That mother is going to be a little longer than two hours. Thank goodness for Netflix and miniseries. And it sounds like Zach, Zach Snyder should be, he should be making a series on Netflix and exactly. have 12 hours exactly to tell his right. tale. Exactly right. But uh, any movie, like I can think of, I'm a giant Shakespeare fan. I'm mm-hmm. a huge Kenneth Branagh fan. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh put out a theatrical release of Hamlet, which mm-hmm. was the entire play. Now, historically, the play is super duper long. Okay. And he did the entire thing in movie form, which normally gets the, some of the ancillary parts get um, abridged out. Uh-huh. It was four hours and 12 minutes long. It was four VHS tapes when I got <laughs> <laughs> It's spectacular. It's it's approaching flawless. Wow. I can't imagine. And I adore it. 
I cannot imagine how I would sit here across from you and say, okay. <laughs> it's spectacular. It's beautiful. It's, there's a lot of practical effects effects and real sets and remember we're talking about castles and frozen lakes and like it's all so it's gorgeous okay let's watch it for four hours plus i'm already literally i'm i'm twitchy and antsy just thinking about watching a movie in my own home for four hours plus so although what didn't bother you one bit was three movies that would take six and a half hours to show correct that didn't bother you at all no and that's my point that at some point you have to admit if you're making a movie that that is a collaborative effort and you want to tell a story that never fucking ends great tell your mama your mama will listen to anything you do but if you're going to tell me tell me in less than two and a half hours yeah yeah, because i got shit to do yes what was the number five man uh wait 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 i thought we were on number six what was number six the secret life of pets it came out uh universal put it out it's animated i think mm, yes and it, it is made 875 million dollars and change it's one That's of the uh all i know about the secret <laughs> life of pets. i know i know the pets are very cute when you see the previews and since i'm not taking a kid to the movies i haven't seen that one but that was one of the it's a new i it's new ip um no major stars or at least it didn't use major stars in market as far as I know, and it's it's in the top ten grossing films. Number of last year. Yeah. Yes, of number last year. Uh number five is the jungle book. And uh, that boom, boom, boom. Like there's two right in a row. Yeah, and that is a Disney movie. All the rest, the top five are all Disney movies. Okay. Okay. Uh that made uh Jungle Book made nine hundred sixty six million five hundred and fifty thousand wow. dollars. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that's worldwide growth. So we don't know if Secret Life of Pets and The Jungle Book get the benefit of being a great movie, and they can hire native-speaking actors to play those parts in the different markets. Yeah, right? maybe, maybe. Yeah. Which yeah. is one of the power, one of the strengths of doing an animated movie. Our friend Mallory O'Meara makes uh, animated movies with Dark Dunes Productions, but yeah, you just go hire a, a native-speaking cast of stars in that country, and then it feels it feels at home right. when it comes out in Mexico or Brazil or wherever. Exactly. Uh, number four, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, also from Disney, $982 million. Oh, it didn't make a billion dollars? Just barely didn't make a billion. Get, you $982,998,000. Know, uh, I guess if you put a girl in the lead role of a movie, it just won't make enough money. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like to find out, though. I'd like to find out in 2017. That Let's thing made do almost lots. a billion dollars. Let's put lots of lead girls. And, and Force see. Awakens made over a billion. Okay, that was... I fucking loved Rogue One as a storyteller who works really hard to create universes and having things and we spend we spend we don't just spend time on continuity we have a guy we hire as a freelancer to check our continuity in the books that we put out to make thank sure you they big all John. <laughs> thank you big John to tie all of this stuff together that's money we're you know it's not a lot of money but it's money we're willing to spend just to get that because I can't keep track of everything and to see a movie from the biggest fiction franchise in the history of mankind to put that kind of detail work into tying different things together, it made me feel respected as a fan. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I, I think I might have said this when we talked about uh, Rogue One uh, on Stories Mag. I'm not sure, though. One of the things that uh, thrilled me and broke my heart all at once was about halfway through the movie, it occurred to me that all these characters w- won't come back. You know, no, that's not true though. You, that's not true. The lead woman, the I can't remember her name, but the lead mm-hmm. actress, mm-hmm. she's going to be in the Han Solo movie. Yeah, but I mean, they, oh, that they character's don't, iteration, right? Like they don't come. The story that I love, right? This came before the first three cinematic 
okay. uh, releases, uh-huh. uh, which are four, five, and six, A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And you want that this to be like, um, I don't know, a, I wanted, I was enjoying it so much. I was like, oh, finally, like new life into this glorious story and, and series. And then it occurred to me like, oh. Right, so they they might diverge from the timeline, but these these all these characters because this happens before a new hope. Mm-hmm. These characters I love so much don't like don't make it off off the Titanic. Ma'am, so your, to speak. your problem is that you like the good characters. For me, I, Darth <laughs> Vader and Grand Moff Tarkin—they're coming back in the next film. I could not be happier. That's true. That's a good point. That's good. For me, I'm specifically speaking of Diego Luna. Oh yeah, uh, his character was so great. He and did his, a great job. Yeah, his character with his his Mexican ac- or Spanish accented English, and just being exactly who he was as a human and still doing his job, I thought was that's great. Yeah, and it's sad that he's on the Titanic. So, so that was number five? Uh, that was number four. Four. Okay, here we go. The last three. Go ahead. What's uh, number three? Zootopia. What? Yeah. Zootopia. The hell is Zootopia uh, I think about? also, uh, <laughs> also animated from Disney. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we really know our movies. We know our stories, man. We're like the number three grossing movie in 2016. I'm like, what the hell is that about? Well, number two is Finding Dory, which I also haven't well, seen, uh, also animated. But I know what it's about. Yeah. Because if you've ever watched Ellen at all, Finding Dory comes up. If you're flipping through the channels, you know that Ellen and Finding Dory and what a great, what an awesome, super fun success story that is. But how much, well, hold on, go back. What did number, what did Zootopia make? It made a billion, 23 million, 784, That's neat. And then what did Finding Dory make? Um, 1 billion, 27 uh, million, 865,760. All right. And then finally, ma'am, what is the number one movie of 2016? Uh, first, I'm going to tell you what Zootopia is about. Oh, okay, okay. It's um, from the largest elephant to the smallest shrew. The city of Zootopia is a mammal metropolis where various animals live and thrive. When Judy Hopps becomes the first rabbit to join the police force, she quickly learns how tough it is to enforce the law. Determined to prove herself, Judy jumps at the opportunity to solve a mysterious case. Unfortunately... That means working with Nick Wilde, a wily fox who makes her job even harder. So uh, the that that's Zootopia. <laughs> okay. Number one, uh, coming in with one billion one hundred fifty-three million three hundred four thousand four hundred ninety-five dollars worldwide. Captain America: Civil War, which was also a movie I liked. I liked it, but when I didn't like it as much as Rogue that- One. That plot came apart at the end big time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, I think that these movies are the, those comic book movies are the best at, at sort of bringing live act, live action actors into a comic book world. I Mm -hmm. think that that was the most, um, understandable, relatable kind of version of that, even though they're spectacular, they have spectacular feats of strength and are spectacularly not actually human kind mm-hmm. of thing. I still thought it was pretty good. They still, they're doing such a good job making, making these movies comic booky. They're comic book. They, they look, feel, smell, breathe like the comic books I read as a kid and as a teenager in my twenties, et cetera. And that's, you know, somebody's, it's been going on for 20 years now, but people finally figured out like, yeah, don't let Hollywood tell you how to make the movie or the story. Cause you tell stories a certain way and make them look a certain way and they make shit tons of money and make people happy. Just do that up on the screen and now they do that and everything's cool. Hmm. So it's interesting if you look at this list, if you are, say, a parent of a 13-year-old and a 7-year-old, I'm guessing you go to the movies 
all the time. <laughs> because there are one, two, three, four, five. I'd say five of the top ten are ideal for a seven-year-old. Okay. And the other five are ideal for a 13 or 14-year-old. I see. Which is fantastic. I see. Well, they, none of those people went to see Herpes the Love Bug. Not one. Yeah. You know what? What? No one went to see Herpes the Love Bug. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> because that is not a thing that exists. <laughs> I would normally at this point, I'd say, well, it should. But I'm not sure that that is a movie yeah. that anybody needs to see. Exists. <laughs> Although now I'm already contemplating the screenplay about the plucky, well, the plucky herpes virus that joins the police force. And has to solve a sex crime. So that is our show for this week. If you have questions for Scott or for me, or if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on a future episode of Story Smack, please email us at info at emptyset.com. That's I-N-F-O at emptyset.com. You can find us both online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I'm a real girl on Twitter and a.real.girl on Instagram. And you can find this podcast online at scottsigner.com slash storysmack. We'd love to see your comments there. You can find us on iTunes. Just search for Scott Sigler Audiobooks and subscribe. You'll get a free audiobook episode every Sunday and a big hit of Story Smack every Friday. And next week, we are talking the Resident Evil franchise, which is a billion-dollar franchise, believe it or not. So you still have time to binge-watch Mila Jovovich and a whole bunch of zombies and learn about some big-name TV shows that have completely ripped off the Resident Evil franchise. Mm. We will tell you about that next week. You guys come back on Sunday if you want uh, the next episode of Pandemic, and we'll talk to you all a little soon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it ah. eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.